Stand to your feet, Luke chapter 3. I, um, I, I want to let you know up front, we, we do plan our sermon series out. I, I like having a plan about what's going to happen. And, and so, um, so I was actually planning on preaching something different this morning on time, God's timing. And I still may do that in this series. But um, what I'm getting ready to ple- preach is not politically correct. It's not corrected in anything in today's culture. So I want you to lean in and, and listen, and, and we're going to apply it today. Will you do that for me? Everybody's like, tell me what you're going to say first before I agree to anything. Luke chapter 3. We'll start reading in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia, and, and Trachonitis which sounds like a sickness. Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways. All flesh shall shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. How would you like it if we opened the sermon with the service of that? You brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics, is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he may be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm unworthy to tie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Father, we thank you today. This is an opportunity we have to look into your word and apply it to our lives. And you said if we're faithful to do that, it will renew our minds. So God, this is not an easy topic we're about to cover. So we pray, Lord, that we'd have the courage to apply it. We pray that we'd be, have the conviction of the Holy Spirit, Lord, to do something different today than we have been. And we pray that because we were together today, we'd be prepared because the King is coming. Thank you today, God, for this opportunity we have. And we 
honor you because of it. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray and everyone said, amen and amen. You may be seated. Look at your neighbor and say, here comes the king. Here comes the king. If you're not familiar with John the Baptist, he was an um, extremely peculiar, peculiar individual. He, um, he was not typical in anything that he did. He was the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah, and he was a miracle baby. Not quite as much of a miracle as Jesus, because he was born naturally by the union of a man and a woman, but nonetheless miraculous because the Bible says that Elizabeth was beyond childbearing age. Uh, if you look at biblical history, she was probably beyond 60 years old. And I know through modern technology that women have ch- children past 60 now. Still a rarity, but nonetheless they do. And back then, they didn't. Unless God intervened. And so you see throughout scripture... A couple times where this happens. And Elizabeth and Zechariah are one of those times where the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah and said, your wife is going to have a baby. And he was like, <laughs> all right, all right. And Zechariah was smitten speechless until John was born. And so there's a period of a couple months where he couldn't talk because he had doubted a little bit. John is born, and Zechariah proclaims that his name will be John, which is out of of family customs. And so the angel Gabriel had told them what what to name him. So John is born. About six months after Elizabeth becomes pregnant, Mary finds out that she's pregnant through the Holy Spirit and will would give birth to Jesus, the Christ. The Bible tells us that Mary and Elizabeth are relatives. Uh, Common uh, knowledge to this would would make the argument that Jesus and John were cousins. Uh, The Bible doesn't really go into specifics about uh, the relation of Elizabeth to Mary, but Mary was very young, Elizabeth was very old. So they were relatives. That would make Jesus and John relatives. Uh, Beyond that, we don't know a whole lot. But we know that John was called by God to precede Jesus. We know that he had a very specific job, a very specific calling. And so John works that calling out in an unorthodox way. The Bible says that he's in the wilderness preaching repentance. And he's not trying to win a fashion contest. He's not, he doesn't have the latest, um, the, the latest fad of, he's not a foodie. You wouldn't follow his uh, Instagram feed uh, for recipes. The Bible says that he wore uh, a skin of a camel skin and ate honey and locust. Now, I've traveled to several places in the world, and that's still weird. I don't care where you go. That's still a bit weird. I'm going to just hang out here in the wilderness wearing my camel skin, eating honey and locusts. What? Luke goes into a a good bit of detail explaining the time that John and Jesus came into. And at the 
first couple of verses of chapter 3, he explains who was in charge politically and then who was in charge religiously. And it's very important to understand uh, what he was communicating here. Jesus and John were being, being brought into a world in political chaos and religious chaos. They, uh, some people tend to give... Um, tend to give Pontius Pilate a little pass because he seemed, he seemed like he wanted to wash his hands of Jesus's crucifixion. But historians tell us that he was anything but innocent, that he was a brutal ruler. So John and Jesus are coming into a time where, where politically it's in chaos and there's brutal rulers ruling over uh, Israel and, and, the, and the Jewish people. And, and it's a difficult time. And so Luke kind of explains in this time, here's the brutal people who were in charge. And then he shifts, I think in verse two or three, and he starts talking about the religious leaders and, and he does something that seems out of, uh, it seems weird. He lists two high priests. And if you go back, there wasn't such a thing. He lists Annas and Caiaphas as the high priest. And the reason he does that is this, Annas wasn't actually the high priest when John the Baptist was born. Caiaphas was the high priest. But what happened was, Annas had been removed from power and Caiaphas was his son-in-law, so they put Caiaphas in. But as you know, just because there's a figurehead doesn't mean he has the power. And so Caiaphas was the figurehead priest, but Annas, all his tentacles were going out through the Jewish people, and he still had the power. So Luke, being an astute student of religion, knew who actually controlled the power, so he groups the two guys together. Here's your figurehead, and here's the guy actually running things. So John the Baptist and Jesus are born into this political and religious chaos. It seems like a lot of, like today, doesn't it? The setting is familiar. If you uh, walk outside these walls and say the wrong political thing, you'll start a fight. You may have started a fight at Thanksgiving. And if you don't learn your lesson, you may start a fight at Christmas. We are living, and I would argue, some of the most contentious political times in the history of the United States. Where if we vote differently, it makes it difficult for us to sit together. Where if we vote differently, it makes it difficult for us to be married. Not to mention all the other difficulties. If we vote differently, we have, we, we have to be careful at work. We have to be careful at the dinner table. We have to be careful everywhere. Because you're not sure. You're like, well, I want to make sure. I'm, I'm, I'm polit- I don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers. We live in an environment where people are being attacked because of what they believe. Forget about the religious part of it. The church in America is not growing. People are not coming to Christ by the droves. There's a a religious apathy that has filled Sunday mornings. There's more Netflix watched on a Sunday morning than church attendance. So it's it's a lot like what John and Jesus came into. Political turmoil, religious chaos. We live in a culture where nobody trusts the church anymore. Nobody trusts the preacher because we've 
oftentimes seen too many of them fail. And it's difficult. And so John comes into this setting to prepare the way for Jesus. So John's public ministry starts a little ahead of Jesus's. And the Bible says he goes out in the wilderness and he starts preaching. <laughs> he starts preaching. And he's got one message. Now, now I, started, I started thinking about this. If, if it was today... And, and we, were going, we were going to make way for the coming of the king. If we, we were going we to prepare for Jesus' coming. It would be great to list all the benefits of following Christ, wouldn't it? Man, you could really get people excited about, hey, you know what? Jesus is, died on the cross and, and he'll heal you. That's a great benefit if you follow him. The Bible says that he'll provide all your needs according to his riches and glory. That's a great benefit to following, following Christ. You know what? He'll forgive you of your sins. You, he'll forgive you of all of your sins, even that one. That's a great benefit of following Christ, isn't it? Let me, let me, give, you the, let me give you the 30 benefits to follow Christ because everybody knows that you need to make a sheet of benefits you know, things that are good and things that are bad and then kind of weigh them out, whether we should follow him or not. Because, you know, if it's going to turn out bad at the end, we might want to change our mind. If I jump into this religious thing and my life doesn't instantly get better, I might want to back out. I want to leave the door open in case persecution comes. I want to leave the door open in case I get made fun of at school. I want to leave the door open in case... My family doesn't really like it anymore. Uh, so I'm going to weigh the pros and the cons. And, and then, so we present the gospel like that nowadays. Here's the pros to following Christ. Look how good my life is. You could be like me. It's no different from any self-help book on your shelf or on your Kindle. Hey, this was me 70 pounds ago. And look at me, I haven't eaten in four years, but you could look like me. Here is me with no money. Now look at me, I have all this money now because I'm selling widgets on the internet. You could be just like me. And so we go, we present the gospel as a self-help scheme. Here's the pros to following Jesus. Come on, jump on board. Everybody's doing it. Look how cool the church is. Look how cool everything is. Oh, look how cool we are. Now everybody wants to be like us. I do draw the line. I told my kids, I said, the only way I'm wearing a pair of jeans with holes in them is if I wear them in. personal conviction. The setting is familiar. And I started thinking about how modern Christianity would frame the coming of the king if we had our shot at it. John's calling was to proclaim the arrival of the Messiah. It was his one thing he was born to do. He was born to proclaim the coming of Christ. John chapter one, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. Now remember, the religious ruling party sent people to go ask John who he was. Here's John, 
dressed up in his best camel hair with a little honey on this side and a locust leg hanging out of this side of his beard. I mean, this dude is wild. You know what just hit me? People have no idea about Christ if they think he wears camel hair and eats locust. We have these wild opinions about who Jesus is. They actually send people out to John and go, are you, G- are you Jesus? You got a little in your beard, John. Are you Jesus? They ask him. They can't figure out. They don't have a place to put him. So he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, obviously. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. So what Luke wrote down from Isaiah, now John is actually saying, he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So they... They knew, they knew what Isaiah had said. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah, the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal, I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan when John was baptizing. John had a specific message to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. And like I said, I'm trying to get my head wrapped around about how we would do it. Here's another thing that I think we would do. We would probably get a focus group. Yeah, yeah, a focus group. And on that focus group, we would try to cover every demographic of people. We would get a woman, we would get a man, we would get a young woman and an old man. And we would get a single mom. And a single dad, because we want to make sure we can com- communicate to everybody. And then we would get, we would make sure we've, we got a brown person, a white person, a black person, a yellow person. We'd make sure we got everybody from the focus group to make sure that the message matches everybody. Because if the king is coming, we have to make sure we, we, we fashion the message to where everybody can get it, right? To where everybody can understand. So that means I have to talk Certain way to these people, a certain way to these people, a certain way to these people. Certain, oh, you're a Republican. Oh, you're a Democrat. Oh, you're this. Oh, you're that. Oh, you're, well, we have to, well, I've got to, well, I wouldn't tell a Democrat this. I wouldn't tell a Republican this. But Jesus loves both of you. <laughs> and we curtail the message so it fits. And we would focus group this, focus group that. John had a calling, not a focus group. Okay, reach down for your seatbelt. Are you ready? The no smoking and seatbelt sign is on. Nobody get up from here on. Here we go. The plane is about to descend. John was following a calling, not a focus group. Here's the irony of it. John preached an unpopular message out in the wilderness that drew a crowd. We are trying in our modern day efforts to preach a popular message and it never draws a crowd. The church is failing on the backs of how can we make this, how can we make this taste good for everybody? 
How can we come in a Sunday morning and make the gospel feel good to everybody? How can we make, how can we make it all this, all this palatable to everybody? John went, no, 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 no. That's not the message. And I'm going to be out here whack job crazy preaching this thing and everybody will come out to see it. We may be missing something. I thought, God, how did he, God, I don't even eat locust. Not that I knew of. How did, how did he do it? And then you start looking at what he preached. See, the problem is he could have been every sermon to fit a demographic and race. Checked, uh, checked with his focus group to ensure that what he would say would be accepted by the people who came out to hear him. But he didn't. Preach one message. One message and one message alone. Repentance. Look at your neighbor and said, I knew this was going to get bad. I'm sorry for inviting you the first time to church. I'm sorry it's not usually like this. And I don't know what's happened to him, but he usually preaches really great. Just go ahead. Give him the explanation. It's fine. I'll give you, I'll give you 30 seconds. Just go ahead and talk your way out of it. <laughs> Preach one message, repentance. I thought, dear God, how did he even, how did he even do it? He preached repentance and people came out to hear him? You mean he didn't preach grace every Sunday morning? You mean he didn't come out and tell you, man, don't, don't worry about how much you're sinning because God's grace covers a multitude of sins. You, you, mean, you mean he didn't do the popular thing that we do today and say, hey, listen, it's not, about, it's not about how bad you are. It's about how good God is. Because here's what's happened. We have preached a message of grace without repentance. And here's how it transforms our culture. It transforms it like this. We start gauging ourselves by it's not that. And we start saying, well, you know, I got, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. And we start saying, well, well, I'm not as bad as them. Or, or what I did wasn't that bad. Or what I'm doing is not that bad. God, it's not that bad. God's okay. It, and so we start, we don't gauge our lives by holiness. We gauge it by, oh, on the scale of how bad it is, where do we fall? So what we watch, what we listen to, what we engage in, what we participate in, what we, what we're, what we accept. It's, it's not, is that holy? It's, well, how bad is it? I mean, after all, God's grace will cover it. So what happens is we've numbed ourselves into a constant message of grace that is void of what John preached. You don't have to say amen. I'm going to keep going. The problem with focus groups is they would never tell you to preach about repentance because it makes people feel uneasy because they might actually figure out they're not that good. So it's trickled all the way down. So I have rules about babies. They're all ugly and they're all sinful. Good, no arguments. Okay. Here's the deal. The Bible tells us from the beginning, we were born into sin. That you didn't have a choice. That just because it's your kid and they're cute doesn't mean they're not sinful. But if you ask people, are people... Sinful or good? And most people in the United States, people are inherently good. No, they're not. 
Nowhere in scripture does it say we are inherently good. It says we are bent towards evil from the beginning. But the culture of grace we have preached without repentance has convinced us that we're all good without Jesus. So if you're all good without Jesus, why do you need him in the beginning? So then church becomes an option so that, so that discipline becomes an option so that repentance becomes an option. Because if I'm inherently good, if I was born inherently good and my parents told me I was good the whole time I was growing up and and everything's been fine and I'm, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. Then why would I ever need to come to Christ? I'm good. I mean, when we bump into people at Walmart, that's what we all say. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. How's your way? Good. How's your way? Good. Good. No, man, I'm good. I'm good. We've convinced ourselves and it's caused religious chaos because the guy who came to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah told them they weren't. John, you're getting ready to preach. Biggest set of sermons you've ever preached in your life to get ready for Jesus, what are you going to preach? Repentance. What? I mean, it's Christmas time, John. John, we got the little, we got the baby in the manger. We got the, we hung up LED panels, John. We had a hand-painted graphic for our sermon series, John. We're selling cookies out for the church. If we print repentance, cookie sales will drop. It's a good thing we sold all the pies last week. You can keep cookies a long time. You can't keep a pie. John, if, if, the, if the king was coming, what would you preach? I'd preach one message over and over and over again. Every, every time somebody would listen, I'd preach the same thing. John, if you, if, you have a, if you had a shot to preach before the king came, if the king was coming and you had a chance to prepare people, what would you preach? I'd preach one thing. Yeah, but what about little lovely baby Jesus? I'd preach one thing. Repent. 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 He could have bent every sermon to fit everybody who walked up. He could have tried to make everybody feel good about themselves. But he knew that self-esteem would not get you into heaven. He knew that there'd be plenty of people who thought well of themselves and end up in hell. He knew that the modern theory of everybody has to feel good about themselves to make it would not, would not make the muster with Jesus. That everyone has sin in their lives and it's an issue we have to deal with. That God is not overlooking anything. That grace is not a license to do anything. So when God chose the message to send people before Jesus took the stage, it was a simple message of repent. Turn around. Stop what you're doing. Change your mind. Realize the sin in your life and stop it. He didn't try to make people feel better about themselves. He said, stop it. When people came to him and said, what should we do? He said, if you've got two coats, give one to somebody that doesn't have one. And then a tax collector would come and he said, John, what should I do? He would say, stop collecting more than you should. When a soldier came to him, a Roman soldier, what should I do, John? Stop it. Stop it. 
One after another after another. What should I do? Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. It reminds me of when I was raising little kids. Stop it. Stop it. You wake up in the morning and what do you say? Stop it. You go to bed at night. What do you say? Stop it. One message. The king is coming. How should we respond, John? Stop it. If you're a soldier and, and, you're, and, you're, and you're using your muscle to, to take money from people, stop it. So it was politically incorrect. It was religiously incorrect, but he was across the board with it. So if you're white, stop it. If you're brown, stop it. If you're black, stop it. If you're straight, stop it. If you're gay, stop it. He preached repentance to everybody. There wasn't some group he was, we can't say that to them. We can't say that. No, it was so important. Why is it so important? The king is coming. The king is coming. And if you're ever going to look at him as king, you're going to have to realize your need for him before you see it. You will never see him as king and savior if you don't first realize your need to have a king and savior. I'm good, man. I'm good. John would say, stop it. And we've whitewashed over the whole thing. I'm telling you, it's been easier to preach timing. Man, God's got a rhythm. You can jump into the rhythm, the grace. You can do all that. John came. Stop it. Stop kidding yourself. We're not good enough. Stop kidding yourself. You're not perfect enough. Stop kidding yourself. It's not about how bad it is. It's about, is it holy? So I'm, I'm sitting here wondering, man, I don't, know if, I don't know if I'd have enough guts to do that. Christmas time is about Emmanuel, God with us. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God in the flesh is coming to us because he loves us and he cares about us. And then John walks out on the scene and says, stop what you're doing. Turn around. Quit it. And see your need for a savior. The Bible says when repentance was preached, they came out and were baptized. What are we afraid of? I ask myself that. What am I afraid of? Am I afraid that if we preach repentance, nobody will get saved? That's the opposite of what happened. If we gloss over our need for God, people will come and people will go. If we drive down into the ground, we have a great need for God that we cannot overcome. But by his grace and mercy, here comes the king. Amen. We're going to sing Christmas carols. We're still going to give out presents. And I'm still going to eat more than I should. But we got to stop it. I don't know what it is in your life. I know what it is for me. And I started praying, God, the king is coming. We're celebrating. And all the trappings of Christmas and the hanging the lights and the decorations, all those things. We forget the king is coming. The king is coming. 
The king is coming. The king is coming. The king is coming. It should be on our lips every day. The king is coming. There's no way we get out of it. There's no way it doesn't happen. Just like he came the first time, he said he promised he'd come again. The king is coming. It's the same message. The king is coming. What should be the great message that we preach? Get ready. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. The king is coming. Get ready. Get ready. If you've got to make it sound like a T.D. Jake's voice to get it done, do it. Get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. He's coming. He's coming. What is our response to he's coming? We need to get ready. Repentance always precedes grace. You can't get to grace without repentance. All through scripture. It was so cool. John came. Let me, let me tell you one more thing about John. It's so awesome. John was the last of the like Old Testament guys preaching. And if you look all through Old Testament history, it was the same message. Repent, turn to God, 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 repent, turn to God. That's why the prophets came to tell people, repent, turn to God, stop what you're doing. Turn to God. John was the last guy in that Line of Old Testament prophets. He had one foot in the back. Repent. The king is coming. 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 He was carrying the same message. Repent. The king is coming. And then he put his foot on the other side of the line, grabbed a hold of the king, and baptized him in the Jordan River. <laughs> Jesus said, There'll never be another one like him. Never be another one like him. One foot in the Old Testament. The king is coming. Repent. There he is. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. We, on the other hand, have only experienced one realm. And it's the realm of grace. I'm sorry to say I'm afraid it's lulled us into a deep sleep. Every now and then, we, be, we need to be reminded by the guy who had a foot in both worlds, the Old Testament and the New, to stop it. To stop it. To call our attention back to what the cross stands for. It stands for, for the salvation that God brought. But the reason he came to save us is because we couldn't save ourselves. Because we were lost in sin. And it's not how bad is it, it's just sin. Amen? And I know it's probably not going to help your kids' self-esteem to tell them they're sinful, but it will help their eternity. So repentance always precedes grace. William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, says the chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost. Christianity with Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. And he wasn't talking about 2019. He was talking about the 1900s. The chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. If he wasn't a Nostradamus, there's never been one. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Costs of Discipleship, 
wrote, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace is something we just make up to make ourselves feel better about what we're doing. But the Bible says grace comes after repentance. The king is coming. How should you respond? Stop it. Get ready. He's coming. Romans 6 chapter 1 says this. What shall the... We say then, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This is Paul writing. He says, by no means. By no means. Exclamation point. The strongest sense. Don't you ever think that that's okay. You cannot keep sinning just because we live in grace. I cannot keep sinning just because there's grace available. Because repentance turns me to grace. And then the writer of Hebrews says this, stand to your feet. Boy, aren't you glad you're getting baptized today? (laughs) I could have preached a happy baptism message. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who in the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pick that apart for 30 seconds. Watch this. Go back to verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Stop it. Repent. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Repent. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Repent. Stop it. Stop it. Look at your neighbor. Tell him, stop it right now. I don't know what it is, but stop it. Lay it aside. Every weight. So you think John was the only one that preached this message? No. It's all through scripture. It's all through the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews says, stop and repent. Change your mind, change direction. So then it says this, and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Verse two, looking to Jesus. Now watch this. How do we get to Jesus? Repent and turn and fix your eyes on God, on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. One translation says, the perfecter of our faith, it says here. You want to know how to experience grace? Lord, I'm full of sin right now. And that thing that I just did was not okay, it was sinful. And I'm making commitment right now before you that I'm gonna stop it. With your help, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna stop it. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna turn from that sin now. I'm gonna fix my eyes on Christ because you're the author of grace. You're the finisher of grace. There is, as long as I repent and see my need for you, there is nothing that can... Condemnation comes when you refuse to repent. Because scripture says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So 
so when condemnation comes, it means I won't turn. And if you won't turn, you're already condemned. It's not coming. It's already there. So the scripture says, stop what you're doing. Turn, and now there's no condemnation. Help us this morning, Father. Help us to turn. We're getting ready to walk into a season that we're celebrating the coming of the King. The King is coming. And Lord, even more prophetically than just one Christmas season, you are coming back for a church that's ready for a bride that's ready. And we pray this morning that that same message that John preached would ring in our ears. Stop it and get ready. Stop it and get ready. Lay aside the sin. Lay aside the pride. Lay aside the lust. Lay aside the greed. Lay aside having to have it your way. Lay it all aside. Stop it. Turn to him. Fix your eyes on the author and finisher of your faith. Grace comes immediately. The Bible says that if we are that if we are faithful to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Confession out of repentance brings grace every time. Lord, I pray that you pour that grace out on the out on us this morning as we confess it to you. As we lift it up to you, our our inconsistencies, Lord, our sin, Lord, our blatant opposition to what you've called us to do. God, we ask you to forgive us right now. Forgive us, Lord. And we say to ourselves, stop it. Turn to the turn to our Savior. And once again this morning, God, save us. Set us free. Redeem us from the grip of sin. We come to you not as arrogant, but as totally dependent on you for that grace. Lord, we turn to you, the author and finisher of our faith. And we give you glory for what you can only do. Thank you this morning, Lord. Come on, if you've experienced that grace this morning as a result of making it right, could you just give him praise today? Come on, could you give him praise and honor? He's good. Amen. Amen. Amen.